Hello, and welcome to the Film Design Podcast. I'm your host, Max Lincoln. Lawrence Bennett is a production designer for film and TV, designing projects such as The Offer, Season 1, The Artist, and numerous TV pilots for shows such as Grey's Anatomy. Lawrence Bennett and I'm a production designer. So Lawrence, how did you start working in the industry? How did you get to where you are now? The small easy questions first. <laughs> yeah. Um like like ever like so many people, I think my my path was rather um strange, totally unplanned. When I lived in Dublin for years, I um I was a painter. Uh, I had a design practice with an architect friend. I showed my work and uh, taught at the National College of Art. Additionally, I worked in fringe theater and fell in love with storytelling and um, communal art form. Some friends of mine in Los Angeles were um, just starting to get into the film business. So I came over one summer to, um, to work with them and did a really exciting project. I did miniatures on uh, the original Cosmos with Carl Sagan with about 20 other guys. And we did some fun stuff and we ended up getting a technical Emmy, which seemed to be a rather auspicious start. So a couple of years later, I moved to Hollywood and thought I'd start working in film. Had no idea what I was doing did not know what art direction was and didn't realize that it was actually the summation of all the things that I've been doing in terms of graphics and photography, architectural design, theater. And uh, fortunately was sort of discovered by an art director and trained up a bit, but because I didn't come through the traditional studio system, um, I feel as though I'm sort of autodidact to a great extent, but had the good fortune to have a lot of mentors early on doing commercials when the union was closed to me. And there were a lot of great uh, directors of photography that I worked with who were very encouraging and answered, answered all my stupid questions. So after doing commercials for quite a few years, I managed to get um, a series television show. And then after being awarded the job, told the producer, by the way, I'm not in the union. <laughs> and... Um, to see what sort of help he could be, and he was of no help. So I just applied again, and they rejected me. So I got all my friends with Academy Awards and Academy Award nominations to uh, send over via fax to the local office their recommendations. And sure enough, a couple of days later, I was accepted. What a great group of friends. <laughs> yeah, they really were. Yeah. And what kind of, um, going back slightly, what kind of painting were you doing slash are you doing? <clears throat> it ended up being very, uh, I worked mixed media. It was largely oil and collage. And are you still painting? No. <laughs> no. Now I design for film. Ah, slightly different, yeah. Which pretty well, that between that and cooking, mm. it pretty well satisfies my creative drive. Mm, fantastic. And have you actually um, um, worked in Dublin? 
um, since leaving all that time ago? No, I haven't. Actually, I was back. I've been back a couple of times, but was there about six years ago scouting. Ended up in, in Wicklow and, and out in the West scouting for a project that never came to pass. It was a phenomenal scouting trip because I scouted the West of Ireland, the Wicklow Hills, um, Scotland, North Wales, and virtually all of England by car. It was a great way to see England. I'd, I'd been to London a bunch, but I'd never really been around England and never to Scotland. So getting to do that trip was, was phenomenal. And then ended up uh, in an office at Deneg in London, where the art department was based. And we, we prepped for about three months and then went on a hiatus and never came back. Yeah. That's a shame, but I'm sure it's quite common, actually. Not uncommon. That same project I'd previously done uh, a month scouting in Argentina and a couple months prep in Los Angeles, and it dissolved again then. It's never come back to life. So what, what kind of rate of, over the course of your career, how many of these kind of projects do you get on and get quite deep into that never actually come about? Um, how frequent is it, would you say? Fortunately, not that many. That's good to hear. And um, next, let's discuss your new series for Paramount Plus, The Offer, which is about the making of The Godfather. Um, how did you start the project? Jokingly, I, say, I would say that I started the project by turning it down. Um, when my agents contacted me about it originally, I just thought it was a terrible idea. <laughs> um, you know, you don't mess with the classics, right? Yeah. We weren't actually recreating The Godfather. We were just telling the story about the making of the project. And over the years, I've read a tremendous amount about the uh, bizarre, very funny, and improbable story of how the project almost didn't get made, the many ways in which it almost didn't get made. And, um, you know, it's said that there are a lot of different perspectives on that story. And this one happened to be told from the point of view of Al Reddy, the, the line producer. It was the first thing he'd ever produced, uh, first feature he produced. And um, when they came back to me a couple of weeks later and said, no, we'd really like, like you to think about it. I read the first couple of scripts and just found it hysterical. It's, it's just the, the mad mashup of um, collision of characters was just too fascinating to, to pass on. Mm. So I've only managed to see the first episode so far, but there's something quite fantastically larger than life about the characters and the premise. Absolutely. It actually becomes a bit farcical at times. Well, over the years, I've heard, you know, come to love war stories in the film business. Mm. Every every project um, that's interesting and textured and has an interesting group of people, everyone walks away with great stories that, of course, evolve and develop and become more, you know, the apocrypha surrounding the making of, of films is so interesting. And The Godfather is just, I think, the, sort of the height of that. And with the actual series, there are kind of distinct groups kind of working across it. You've got the gangsters, you've got the Hollywood group. Uh, and then how, how, would you, how would you kind of describe the looks and feels and how did you kind of develop that, really? Wow. Um... Because the, the, the series was, was so choppy in terms of storytelling, because it cut back and forth between these worlds, especially the first couple episodes, mm. where all these characters needed to be introduced and given a bit of backstory. Um, 
felt it was really necessary to draw a clear, bright line between all those worlds mm. so that there was never any question of where you landed in a cut. Um, do you know Dexter Fletcher, the director? Yeah, he's, um, he's fantastic. He's, he's just a wonderful animated character. He's mm. like a large child. Actually, not that large. Um, a delightful, a delightful filmmaker. Um, we started at one of the heights of COVID, and he was trapped in London, couldn't get a visa because the governments were trying to figure out between them which uh, vaccines were compatible and what would qualify him for having been vaccinated. So he and his wife were stuck in their their flat in London. So I spent several weeks on Zoom just working things out with him. I'd send him huge batches of imagery and we'd kick around ideas and just laugh a lot. It was a great beginning. And then I went to Los Angeles, uh, set up the office and began scouting with the first DP, Sal Zotino. And Sal and I, by the time Dexter was able to get to Hollywood, we had a fairly coherent plan about how to tackle this huge sort of fire hose of scenery that was coming at us. And uh, Dexter fell right in and made it a little crazier. And um, we had, fortunately, we had a, uh, a pretty healthy prep period, uh, which was helped by a minor shutdown, you know, of course, a, a little, little hiccup, and which gave us a, a few more weeks. So by the, time, by the time we began shooting, we had some of the standing sets finished and the locations for that first block pretty well underway. And what were the main standing sets for the, um, for the, for the series? For the series, we did the social clubs for the Italian gangs, uh, Colombo and Gambino. We did the Polo Lounge at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Uh, we did the... We did a, a large hotel suite that be, that was chopped and changed and modified over the course of the entire series to, to make it into six different places. There was uh, Bob Evans' office at, at the Paramount lot uh, and a few others I don't remember. I mean, that's already more than I could possibly remember. Um, one thing I noticed particularly in the first episode is how you've used colour and tone to really differentiate the kind of the gangster and the Hollywood worlds. Um, was that something that came from yourself or from Dexter or, or what was the kind of the birth of that? All, all of styles? us, really. Yeah. All of us, really. First of all, we needed to set it, you know, comfortably in the, in the late 60s or early 70s. So palette of that time was, was critical. Also, we needed to differentiate East Coast, West Coast. Um, you know, obviously went for the more Mediterranean light look and stronger, more saturated colors in the West, in Hollywood. And a little dreamier, a little more, you know, just a little more up. And the New York parts between the business world of Gulf and Western, which is very gray and metallic and, you know, sort of straight, straight line. And the, the, the mob world was a little more feeling, a little more character driven. And for the, to differentiate the, the worlds of Gambino and Colombo, uh, Gambino was born in, I think, 1904 or 5 in Sicily. He and his entire group were immigrants. Um, his club was on Mulberry Street in Little Italy. And 
those facades are very specific, high ceilinged, tin ceiling, um, very traditional shop front. Most of those buildings were all done between 1895 and 1915. So there's a very um, almost European feel about those. Um, whereas Columbo's club, we placed him not knowing where his club actually was. We placed it in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn because he was Brooklyn-based and uh, made that a low-ceilinged 1940s building that had been a bar all those years. Uh, the backstory for that, in my mind, was that uh, as a late teenager, early 20s, uh, Columbo and his his crew had discovered a local bar they were very fond of and uh, became habitués. And when the time came for him to establish a headquarters, he just basically encouraged the owner and the, the patrons to move down the block and <laughs> took it over. Nice. That's why there's a pool table, a jukebox, wow. you know, it's much more youth oriented. But all of all of them and that crew were either first generation born or even second generation Italian American. So what I find so fascinating about design is the actual creating and imbuing of character on set, something that you've just talked about. Um when you're coming up with these backstories for the actual locations themselves, is that something that you kind of brainstorm and you formulate and then you take, talk to the director or how does that how does that kind of begin would you say i showed dexter and sal the designs and sal and i worked through them a lot for lighting purposes and camera movement and wilding and all sorts of things but i didn't talk about the story of it so much as when they were being finally being built and i would sit in them with them and tell them the stories of them <laughs> That I had that I come up with, and then they, of course, would elaborate. Nice, yeah. I think that's a fantastic way to give backstories for the actual actors themselves. Um, yeah, there's nothing more satisfying than when an actor an actor walks into a set that you've done for their character mm. and begins to feel it. Yeah, absolutely. And then I would imagine uh, are all of the cupboards dressed and um, how three-dimensional are the sets you've created? Everything's fully detailed. Amazing. There were rooms that we saw in the background that we never went into that were finished out and dressed. And I mean, it's you could go from the front door to the back of each of them and they were both fully dressed. That's incredible. And moving back to talking about working with the cinematographer, how, how were those meetings, how, how did the meetings kind of develop where you're discussing light and the actual sets? Uh, they developed because we talked about those things all the time. Mm. You know, it was just a free-flowing, organic discussion about, you know, it would go from the look of one of the worlds to another to in this world we could do this. And what about this? You know, it was it just developed very organically. And it sometimes happened, you know, sitting around a table with a sketch pad and sometimes just happened out of the world, you know, having lunch and looking at stuff. One of the things I really noticed particularly um, was that they seemed to light the tabletops um, in most of the scenes. So they would always reflect in the glasses, which was a really interesting way of adding a bit of kind of dynamism to the to the to the glass itself. Um, was that something that you guys discussed? I think it sort of just evolved in the way that Sal began shooting mm. it. But certainly a bounce off the tabletop is, is a great way to just get faces lit while keeping keeping the uh, the surrounding 
down. I guess kind of moving on to, to crewing, um, whereabouts were you filming and did you bring a lot of your own crew before or did you have to go on the hunt for people? Um, how did you create the team? We shot the entire thing in Hollywood. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there aren't that many being shot in Hollywood anymore, really. No, it was actually quite busy. Oh, okay. A lot of the time we were actually filming at Paramount. The lot was completely full. Wow. Which made it which made it very difficult because so much of a, a lot of the Paramount based stuff needed the exteriors, needed exterior stages and executive offices and so forth. Um, so because there was the usual base camps for all the shows out and about the lot, there were also COVID pop up tents for testing and everything. So there was there was a whole wealth of other things that needed to be cleared so that we could have, have a clear, cleaner frame. Um, when I got to Los Angeles, I mean, I've got, you know, I've worked with a ton of people over the decades. Um, people are pretty scattered these days working all over the country. So um, there was virtually no one that I had worked with before who was available. Uh, for the set decorator, there's a set, was a set decorator who had worked with me 25 years earlier as a set dresser. Wow. And she had been, she says, stalking me. I would <laughs> just say she's been keeping in polite contact for the past 15 years, just saying that she's de- decorating and, and, you know, wanted a chance to work with me sometime. She's been doing really fantastic things. So she came on board as the set de- decorator. Um, I talked my favorite art department coordinator out of retirement <laughs> to come and, and play with us. Wow. Um, Carol Kiefer, she's just the best. And for the rest, I just began looking for recommendations, seeing who was available. And, you know, you do this thing where the ball bounces off one person and to another. And you just sort of develop the right contacts and ask the right questions and interview people and see who feels right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, back on Paramount, because, um, you know, it's it's opening on their, their brand new streaming service and it's all kind of all about the company itself. How much access do you ha- did you have to their kind of archives and uh, reference libraries and all of that kind of stuff for designing the, the real-life Paramount set? The studio was incredibly supportive. Yeah. Unfortunately, archives of 50-year-old projects yeah. is rather thin. Yeah. Um, I was hoping to find drawings and photo documentation of the sets and things. Part of the complication might have been that it was really um, prepped only briefly in Hollywood, and then they decamped to New York to shoot the picture. Ah. All of the stage work was done at uh, Filmway Studios in East Harlem, uh, a studio that no longer exists. Oh, wow. And of which there's almost no uh, photographic record. Um, We found... Nothing particularly helpful in the studio archives. There were some, a handful of photographs and things, but some behind-the-scenes things. Um, fortunately, you know, the Internet is a, a wealth of, of resource. And research and digging into things began when I started on the project in April of 21 and finished the last week of photography in January of 2021. 22 we really were constantly digging deeper and deeper into things and how big a team did you have some of uh the 
Sorry, I, I was going to say, um, how big a team did you actually have in terms of the research? Was it was it your art department assistants who were doing the work, or did you have specific researchers? How did that work? We didn't have any dedicated researchers. Um, everybody in the department did their own, and I did. You know, I began and researched throughout. Everybody developed their own particular areas of interest. But for example, when uh, later in the show, in the in the fourth block, we needed to begin recreating some of the sets from the movie. Uh, we realized that with no plans and no and very little photo reference, the film was really our best resource. Mm -hmm. And one of the set designers began uh, doing forensic analysis frame by frame of wow. the movie. For example, when we did the Don's office, he did the drawings for it. We managed to find one sheet of drawings from uh, the original plans that Angelo Graham, the art director, had done. Um, it was found, a scan of the drawing was found online at an auction house. Wow. So it basically means that it had walked away and been given or been given away and it has traded hands over 50 years. We don't know where it is today, but the scan was pretty low res. Mm. And it was a large sheet, but we managed to get clarity on just enough of it to figure out what scale we should stage it at. And we're able to do breakdowns from that. But uh, Phil Toulon, the set designer who's tremendously experienced, literally crept through the picture, all of those scenes in the in the office, frame by frame. Because, of course, it was lit very low key. Yeah, absolutely. And the light was kept off of the walls. And with no light on the walls, making out detail, we'd have to isolate frames, then take them into Photoshop and, and, and bring up the shadows so we could see what the wallpaper looked like. Wow. And then we reproduced the wallpaper. We were able to see what the detailing was like in the paneling. Yeah. Proportion that and detail that. It was, it was quite a labor. Yeah, it's a huge undertaking. So um, in terms of the actual details in the sets, um, how much of them were pretty accurate or did you have to take creative license with um, fair bits of it? We took license where we needed to. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the way that we actually handled the sets from the movie was so, so, such a glancing look at them that um, we're able to replicate those closely enough. And we never shot any scenes from the picture. All of the material that we did was in and around the environment of the set stage sets themselves or the locations. Uh, the one that we got the closest look at probably was Louis' restaurant. Louis is where Michael, of course, famously kills Salazzo and McCluskey. Uh, one, of, one of the best couple minutes on film in history. That's phenomenal. Uh, it really is. We got the closest look at that, and that was very difficult to do because we needed to do ins and outs. We needed exteriors and interiors to be able to travel in and out. And it took ages to find the right shop front that would accommodate, you know, that was the right sort of proportion. You know, we didn't have a lot of time to do that. It turned it rather well. Yeah, it's exciting. I'm looking forward to Hopefully you'll keep watching. You can see yeah, it. I'm looking forward to seeing the rest. Um, uh yeah, and another thing I noticed while to, to move on from there, looking at your your IMDb profile and your career, you've done a lot of pilot episodes for various different projects, um, which in itself must be kind of a bit of an art form because you're 
quickly creating a general look and then you don't know necessarily if you'll be continuing on that. Um, have you found right. working in that way? Um, and I'd love to hear more about the actual process. <clears throat> Pilots are, are probably the toughest thing, mm. I think, because both for the writer, for the designer, for the DP, because you have uh, not all of those have been uh, broadcast, but a lot of them were in the time of broadcast. And so you had typically 43 minutes of screen time to tell the, to introduce a bunch of characters, set up the premise of the entire series and set it in motion and make people want to come back the following week. Uh, it's different now, obviously, with, with streaming and, and prime cable. Um, but broadcast pilots were just crazy. And because they were all done, shot at the same time as one another, typically in February, March, the networks would make their announcements in April and begin begin production right away. Um, they were all in competition for the same talent, both on-screen talent and behind-the-scenes the uh, talent. So it was just insane. Fortunately, that's eased up now because there are not as many network projects. And they finally learned, oh, wait, we don't have to actually introduce these all at the same time. We don't have to make them at the same time. But um, pilots are tough. Uh, you know, you're sort of torn between design decisions that make sense about the series and just what makes the best looking hour of film. You know, the distinction being, does this make sense for the long run? Because it has to. If it's not something that's sustainable over the course of years and years of the run. Uh, but your obligation is also just to make the most attractive piece of film the most inviting thing as a sales tool for the series. So there's some pressure there. Yeah, because um, I can imagine you can make something... Of... Uh, sorry, I imagine you can make something absolutely stunning, but then if you're not actually going to do the rest of the series, you could be <laughs> like shooting the next designer in the foot, potentially, um, if that's not yourself. Yes. Yeah, and I, I never have done pilots where the idea was going to design, design the series. Mm. I have in many cases... But most often, just um, in the past 20 years anyway, just setting up the permanent set and then leaving and passing it on. Mm. So based, based, on, based on that kind of mindset, um, how creative do you end up pushing things? Or like, like what, where would you be in that kind of like safe to creative side, do you think, with each of the projects? I think like, any, like all visual storytelling, you need to go to the heart of, of the story and just do what's right for story. Yeah, makes sense. And um, I mean, of of many of them, like Sneaky Pete would be one that, um, and Grey's Anatomy as well. I mean, both both have done phenomenally well in their own ways. I mean, particularly Grey's Anatomy was on for such a long time, <laughs> crazy long time. Um, it's still on. Is it still on? All right. Um, but yeah, I mean, does it does it? I guess uh, does it feel strange to have kind of been at the start of something that kind of takes its own form and like I guess after so many seasons it kind of starts to come away from where you've initially um, started it. I haven't seen a current episode of Grey's in several years but I would bet anything that if I tuned into one it's, it's not vastly changed. Okay. Um, tonally mm. the kind of scenery um, you know starting uh, what was originally called Seattle Grace mm. Hospital 
was making that, building that, and setting that look for me was wonderful. Um, and I built the permanent, the original permanent sets. It's been expanded on, but it's still basically the same. I'm so thrilled for Shonda Rhimes' success. She's she's one of the best. Yeah, she's so and, incredible. Uh, yeah, so I'm nothing but pleased. Yeah, I um I know some people who've worked on the Bridgerton series, and um, it's amazing that she's come over here and expanding even further. It's it's pretty cool. Shondaland. Yeah, <laughs> Shonda World. Um, yeah, and then switching color schemes, um, you worked on the artists, which um also did phenomenally well. Um, I'm super curious to hear about designing black and white because that's not something we've actually discussed on the podcast before. Um, who, who have you got a chance to talk with that about uh, no and I've talked to people who've done music videos in terms of black and white but um, but and some commercials and I know from my own personal research that the colour red never looks quite right and they often use other colours for red um, but that's I haven't I haven't done too much of a deep dive into to black and white filmmaking so I'd love to hear any thoughts uh, it was an adventure that's for sure um First of all, I would just say that I've long had a love of silent film. Film from the silent era is the purest visual storytelling I can imagine. It's <clears throat> still at the heart of film for me. Um, big Chaplin fan, big Buster Keaton fan. Um, I was watching, re-watching some Truffaut picture the other day, and I realized I remembered that the first time I went to Paris, I spent part of every day just going from one cinema to another because there was just a wealth of silent film that could be seen any time of the year. Um, trying to figure out how to approach the black and white of it all was was a real trick. Um, there is, was a British designer named Terence Marsh with whom I became friendly and was just the sweetest man, a great production designer. Because he had started the business at a time when black and white was more common, uh, I, I rang up Terry and asked him if he could talk to me a bit about it, because I honestly didn't know if people, if designers had had their sets painted naturalistically or in black and white and grays. And uh, that was testing his memory going back that, that far a bit. But he said that he had seen both done. So what I took the decision to do, which seemed to make sense at the time, was because we had so many films within the film that I would do all of the film sets in quotation marks and render them in monochrome. Mm -hmm. And I would all do all the naturalistic environments for the characters, even if they were filming in, in naturalistic colors. So all of the stage sets would be black and white if they were uh, film sets, that we revealed as film sets. Like when uh, George dances with Penny, mm. the first time they, they, right after they've met. That was all done in black and whites and grays. And the paneling around the bottom of the room was all travel oil. It was, you know, painted, all the, the detail and, and dimension was painted into it. There was no dimension in this walls. Um, but any of the naturalistic sets George's apartment where he lived within the movie and the story. That was all done in naturalistic colors. Um, but then we needed to figure out how to how to, to treat the monochrome painting so that it would photograph properly. 
uh, I talked to a ton of people, film labs and DPs, and people insisted that there used to be black and white grayscales that we use all the time for black and white motion picture photography. I've never been able to find one. <laughs> so we made our own. Yeah. Just ba basically picked a range and did 10 or 20 tones. And uh, it was basically 10 tones with subsection. And we photographed everything in color digitally and then converted it to digital conversion and tweaked it and just kind of learned learn the lessons the hard way. Mm. Uh, fabrics and, and wallpaper and carpet, anything that had color in it and pattern and texture, we would photograph them and just see how it was going to read. Just sort of put everything together and um, did our best with it. That worked out. It, it turned out well. One of the things that, in terms of composing the image, that was quite apparent was that we've come to rely on color so, so much for separation and to an extent to, for depth. Without color, you need to rely more heavily on uh, tonality, texture, luster. So that's what we paid the most attention to. In terms of what you're saying, if there was a particular uh, prop or area that you really wanted to draw attention to, um, what were the main uh things that you did decide to use like you're talking about kind of you know tonality and one thing i made sure to do was uh, ensure that the background never fought with the foreground with characters because we needed to isolate them and, and make the attention on them so much cleaner than we need to ensure it would be a clean read um so I, did, I tried to all, keep all of the all of the environments. I don't want to say subtle, but I wanted to make sure that they didn't fight for attention. Mm -hmm. A big black and white floor was made a, a gray and black floor, so that it wasn't quite so contrasty. Those those sorts of things, so that it mm. it didn't draw as much attention as what should be foregrounded. If you notice in scenes where Pepe and George are among a bunch of other people. Everybody sort of contributed to this between the lighting and wardrobe and hair and makeup. If you look at crowd scenes that Pepe is in, for example, she often has a white collar or something light around her, which draws attention to her head and face and, and or her hat frames her head in a way that's completely different from people around her. Mm. There's not as much contrast or strong, clean black and whites in the crowd so that um, George George's suit is always a little crisper black and white mm. than anyone around him. So he pops. Oh, fantastic. Um, how much time did you have for the actual research and R&D on all of these different <laughs> um, coming up with all these solutions? I'm imagining from your action, not very much. No, it was just a constant, <laughs> ongoing, ongoing uh, trial yeah. and error. It was a learning process, let's yeah. put it that way. I mean, if you were to do it again or you were to do another black and white film, um, what would be the main changes or the main new things that you would do to to get it where you, you think it should be? I don't know that I'd approach it terribly differently. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's great to hear. It sounds like you've done a, a ton of research. Yeah, I guess um, based on what you've been saying in terms of the different places you filmed in 
Um, you've been on the road a lot and you would have been living away from home for quite some time. Um, I was wondering, how, as we, it's not something we've really discussed before, how you found being away from home for such long periods of time and um, yeah, what kind of coping strategies you have to kind of um, to kind of stay positive when you're stressed out and strung out in somewhere random, essentially. Uh, first of all, I'd say it wouldn't have been possible without a very supportive and understanding partner. Mm. My wife is used to be in the business, so she gets it. Yeah. Um, she occasionally will come and visit, stay with me for a month or so, particularly if it's someplace nice like Italy or Amazing. Morocco or France. But um, I, I've been on the road most of the past now 28 years Wow. Um, since I moved to Oregon. Um, I don't know. I'm energized by being someplace new. I'm just There's something about travel for work. There's something about travel for filming that's so different than any other sort because you're working and you need to dig into a, a place in a way that you wouldn't ordinarily. Hmm. Um, it's only possible because of the support, I think, of... of the people that I meet and hire and work with. Um, there's something exhilarating about landing somewhere where you know so, no one and uh, need to put together a crew. Mm. And that crew is your support in so many ways, so many aspects of your life in the time that you live there. Um, I think working on location is just the best. So would you choose location over studios? in terms of your preference? I choose whatever works for the story. <laughs> <laughs> Very diplomatic. Uh, no, not diplomatic. It's true. It's like, you know, yeah. when you read a script the first time, it's like, what's going to be handled better? Mm. You know, is this is this sequence going to be handled better in a location mm -hmm. or in the, in the studio? And maybe it's a combination of both. Mm. Maybe... There's an aspect of the exteriors or coming into the space that really needs, lends itself to being a, a practical location. And sometimes the perfect location doesn't really allow you, uh, the, your favorite location pick for a set won't allow you to do the scene work in, inside that you need to. Maybe you just need, be, need to be camped out there for days or weeks Maybe you need to, to do camera moves to support the storytelling that are not feasible within that space. When we're doing in the Valley Vela, uh, there's a motel room that features really heavily. Tommy Lee Jones's character is like based there while he's in Albuquerque looking for his son in, in this in Mexico town. And um, we really wanted to keep the exterior present we want to be able to open the door and have the world there. Mm. But we had a ton of work to do in that. And it just it, it seemed crazy to shoot without having a little more space. Mm. So we, when we found the right motel, I talked the uh, motel owner into letting us have the adjacent room. And we took out the wall between the two rooms <laughs> and built wow. a false wall, false yeah. wall in sections that could come in and out. And then... Uh, uh, Roger Deakins, the great DP, who was really fond, uh, particularly at the time, of operating 
himself and working on a, a jib arm. Mm. Very seldom put the camera on a dolly. It was always a jib arm. That would allow us to keep the chassis of the dolly in the adjacent room mm. and just jib over into the room and move around without encringing on the floor space. And it seemed pretty sensible and it worked out really well. Yeah, I mean, that's a phenomenal kind of trick and also by using an, an actual real space like you just get all of the kind of the raw kind of strange things that just come from real spaces yeah absolutely um, yeah i was going to ask about that that film like there's a lot of military um military scenes and military vehicles and kind of general military things um how did you put that together like did you have a military advisor or was it like um with the others just lots of your own personal research and no, I, I've done several several pictures with with the military element. We always have a military advisor. Mm. Um, really, really good ones. In that case, um, we had an American military advisor, but all of our military scenes that involved the hardware and the gear and stuff were actually in meant to be in Iraq. We shot all those scenes in North Africa and in Morocco. Right. So I, I sourced the material, the vehicles and everything in Morocco with the help of the Moroccan government. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is always an adventure. Of course, and yeah. They're in the unique position of having American and Soviet-made tanks, mm. Humvees, armored vehicles, transporters, and so that we could do both sides of the, the battles. Oh, fantastic. Um, how, I guess, um, you'd be working with a fixer, but what are the processes of acquiring such amount of military tech? Because arguably, I mean, obviously you're making a film, but, um, if someone were to, to, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a scary thing to be in command of. Um, how do you, how does the prop master and the teams kind of look after all that gear and what's, what's that process like? Uh, I was really only involved in initiating it, mm. and basically my uh, Moroccan art director and I drove to Casablanca one day and sat in the office of a lieutenant, a colonel actually in the yeah. Moroccan army, who deals with, is a film liaison, Amazing. and after uh, lots of cigarettes and, and tea, we discussed you know, our needs, yeah. make li made lists, went out and looked at all the gear, and you know, it was sort of a it was a, a discussion. Yeah, I can imagine. And then I stepped away. Once once I determined what we needed, I let my art director and the transport people take it over. But they're fairly used to it. They've done that many times. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, it's a, it's an amazing place. I'm I'm hoping to go soon. Um, of the many places you've been in the world's working, which has been a personal favorite of yours? Uh, Italy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, lived in Rome for eight months while while doing the picture, and just had the best time in the world. What was the picture? The best crew was called uh, Third Person. Okay. We were based uh, at Cinecitta, amazing, which is you know, Sancrotera, and um, just had the best best time. Yeah, it's an amazing place to work. I had a lot of fun there. Um, yeah, I guess um, another question to, that I generally ask people is um, what do you look for in assistance and um, for kind of like new people coming into the art department? Hmm. Um, 
I think the key attributes other than artistic skills would just be uh, openness, uh, curiosity. I think those are the key things. And just uh, willingness to dig in, not be afraid to ask questions, not be afraid to ask for clarification. Um, Yeah, I think those are really, really great things. I always find it fascinating, the crossover between the various different people's uh, thoughts. But I mean, on the whole, it generally is the same thing, really. Um, it's kind of an eagerness to to actually get stuck in, um, which I think is so important. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of your future work, I know you're in between things at the moment, but what kind of projects are you hoping to work on next? Is there a specific kind of genre or type of film that you'd love to get your teeth stuck into? I'm open to whatever story uh, comes to me that, that feels right. Um, mm. As I mentioned to you earlier, very briefly, I'm advising on a small project right now, just sort of mentoring someone. Um, Teaching is, is part of my my life now, just sort of sharing. Uh, so I have a lot of mentees who are sort of an occasional touch for advice. Um, there are so many voices of discouragement in the arts and entertainment that I, I, just, I just try to consistently be someone can, uh, someone who younger folks can... Uh, reach out to to remember that they should just hang in there and persevere. Um, I don't know. Getting back to your actual question, I think I think a Western. Mm. Because the closest, uh, I did a Western, a pilot for what was a Western series several years ago. So seven, eight, nine years ago. And it was wonderful. and didn't get picked up. So, uh, but I had the best time on that. Um, In the Valley of Ela is structurally, thematically, and in design terms, in my eyes, a Western. Mm. So that's as close as I've gotten. But I very consciously spoke and talked with the director and Roger, the DP, about it in terms of being a Western when we were doing it. We looked a lot at John Ford, and, you know, it's got searchers all over it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's 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 the American individual who thinks he knows better with his enculturation in in a wild environment, um, doing battle for justice against things he doesn't understand, looking for truth that is going <laughs> to undo him. Yeah. And uh, it the military there is it's, it's you know. The, the armored vehicles of the American army in Iraq are analogous to the cavalry in the Western. You know, it's going out. And, and also, architecturally, the villages of uh, Iraq are, are, you know, remarkably similar to uh, the indigenous, to the uh, vernacular architecture of uh, New Mexico, where we shot. So there you go. That's a really interesting link. Um, 
and um, yeah, I mean, the Western would be incredible to work on. Yeah, and uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Max. The show's intro was composed by Sam McGrail, mixed by Max Bloom, and the artwork was created by Alec Jagodzinski.